All right, we're consistently going through the doctrine of God, and um, and then just let you guys know where we're traveling. We're going to do the, the doctrine of God, and then we'll do uh, the doctrine of Jesus, um, starting at the beginning of the next year, which will be in January. And uh, we'll start out with the Trinity. I know we haven't done the Trinity yet, but that's, you know, we given the explanation of God, and then we'll work in the Trinity, and then we'll do the doctrine of the Holy Spirit um, then into June. So we'll be looking at looking at those things, trying to figure out God, God the Father, and, and what He's doing, what's going on, and, and getting to know, getting to know Him more. So today we're going to talk about, um, the wisdom of God. And, um, He, uh, um, comes from a perspective of wisdom that is, is absolutely shocking to us. And if you don't have notes, there's notes there in the back. Make sure that we all have our notes that we're, we're coming in here. But when we're looking at, um, the wisdom, um, of God, there's something that's going on that's, that we just don't know everything about. And the thing that's going on is, is there's, seems like there's a fight between Lucifer and God. And, uh, and then we're like in the middle of it. So when we start talking about the doctrine, um, of God, uh, a lot of things are coming out in regards to the tanglement that is going on, that is going on there. And, uh, and then we're kind of the, the spectators of it. But I just want to look at this perspective when it comes to the wisdom of God. And I want to, um, to look at it in regards to the word that has been handed to us with Satan in the same perspective that is there. So um, there's a couple passages that gives us a, a little explanation um, of who Satan is, of who Lucifer is. This is Lucifer before he was Satan, cast down to earth. This is the first sins that ever even took place. It came from Lucifer before he was brought down. But um, I want to take a look at Lucifer and then why he fell and then what Jesus, God, did about it. And the reason why is because if you see what God did about when Lucifer fell, you get to know God a little bit more. And you get to know his wisdom of what is going on. And um, so let's just, um, Ezekiel gives us an explanation. In Ezekiel 28, 11 through 15, gives us a description of, of even Lucifer. Son of man, take up the lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus saith the Lord, this is now talking about Lucifer. You, Lucifer, Satan, had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. The ruby, the topaz, and the diamond. The beryl, the onyx, and the jasper. The lapis, the luzi, the turquoise, and the emerald. And the gold, and the workmanship of the setting, and the sockets was in you. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were the anointed cherub who covers, and I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created. You get the word created in there twice. And when you get the word created, meaning God created Lucifer, how did he make him? What did he make him look like? Absolutely gorgeous. Absolutely beautiful. He's like the choir director. Absolutely everything that would appeal to us, anybody. An angel that is absolutely gorgeous. Problem is, is that Lucifer, Satan, um, it took him higher than he should have gone in regards to who he was. And this is the reason why he fell. Isaiah 14. But you said, Satan said, Lucifer said in his heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. And I will sit on the mountain of the assemblies of the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, and I will make myself like the most 
high God. It's the I, five I wills that he was cast out. I will, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. There was something that Satan took his beauty, took his majesty, took his glory, took who he was, and exalted it beyond God, aggressively beyond God. So what was he asking for? And I just want to go through this briefly because I don't want to focus on Satan. I want to focus more on God through this passage. But um, Satan had an obsession for glory. If you look at I will ascend, glorious is, is weight, is beautiful, beauty. I will go above. I will be recognized. I will be noticed. I will be the one. Number two, Satan had an obsession for power. I'm the one that will be everybody, the one that will be everywhere, where everybody will lean on. Everybody would, would rest in. Everybody would rely in. I'd be that one that carried all that power. I'd be the one that carried all that control. Number three, Satan had an obsession for position. I'll be in the right position where I'm honored. I'll be in the position where I'm respected. I'm going to be in a position that what I want to happen will end up happening. That's what he is looking for in regards to specifically even position. Satan had an obsession for beauty. I mean, we see that, the, the ruby, the topaz, the diamond of how he was created. I'm gorgeous, and this is an obsession that is inside of him, and as a re- result, he will even move towards the, the, the statement that um, that I'm gorgeous. I know it, and I will be looked at. I will be recognized. I will be the one that will be that people will be enthralled with. And then again, he had the obsession for status as well. So when you look at this passage in Isaiah 14, you know, I've got it in red in regards to obsessions um, that are there. Um, and this was Satan's response to God. And then what did God do? God kicked him, kicked him um, out of heaven. And where did he throw him? It's interesting. He threw him on earth. And so when he came to earth, what's, when he's thrown down to earth, not come to earth, he's thrown, cast down to earth, you had Adam and Eve there, and as, as they were there, um, this obsession is then trying to be transferred inside of a temptation to Adam and Eve. And says, you know, you could be just like God. You would understand good and evil. You can, in fact, everything that is even said in Genesis is to try to put his system of glory, of power, of position, of beauty, of status, into us, into the human beings. Because he knew that he was cast out. He, he's not going to get a savior. He's not going to get anything. He was cast out, but his obsession has not stopped. So take the fruit. Don't listen to God. It will make you understand. It will make you like God. Look at every single statement that is, is there. And what did Adam and Eve do? They fell for it. What did they fall for? They fell for another another king. Another king that would give them glory, another king that would give them power, position, beauty, and status. They fell for Satan instead of God. That's what the temptation was. Come to me and fall for me because I have this to offer. God does not have this to offer. I have this to offer. And we fell for it. And when we fell for it, it did go into our bloodstream, it went into our system, and then all of a sudden we're born with this nature called sin. And inside this nature, we still carry this obsession of glory, power, position, beauty, and status. It's it's inside of us, um, and it is always wanting to come out. So God, in his great wisdom, um, did what? (laughs) 
in his great wisdom, he went down and he goes, I'll redefine everything that Satan wanted and I'll make it absolutely different. So what does he do? Number six, God redefined glory. Here Satan says, I will ascend. I will be the one. And what does this look like? It looks like his character when he was created as Lucifer in heaven. I will ascend, carry the position, carry the power, carry the, 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 the top spot. I will ascend. And God says, you know what I'm going to do? It's completely redefined. If there is a human being on this earth right now that wants to ascend, you must do what? Descend. He just changed it. You must descend. Luke 6 says this. Looking at the disciples, he said, Blessed are those who are poor. That's completely not what Lucifer wanted. He wanted all the wealth. He wanted all the riches. But blessed are you poor. Because if you're poor, you're telling me that what? That I am, my God is, is God. So it's almost splitting the, splitting the mark. Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of God. God's saying, you come my way. This thing's this way. You think this is gorgeous, you think this is good, well, I'm changing it. If you're poor, blessed are you. Why? Because you could own it all in this passage. Blessed are you who are hungry, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when you hate you, when men hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven. For that is how your fathers treated the prophets. But woe to who? Woe to you who are rich, for you have already received a comfort. Woe to you who are well fed, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for that is how their fathers treated all the prophets. Redefine glory. This is the one that is blessed. He's making very clear distinctions between the two gods. The two gods of Lucifer thinks who he has us, but then he's given us a savior in the process of giving the savior who had all the glory came down as a man. Came down as a man. And as he came down as a man, what did he do? He laid his life down and then he died and says, this is your new king, people. This is your new God. This is, this is what is makes you connected to me. The process of being connected to me. Number seven, God redefined power. Again, Satan was, I will raise my throne above the stars. I will be the one that will sit on the throne because the throne is a statement of power. Makes in all the decisions, makes in all the, the words of control, all the sovereignty. And then Second Corinthians 12 says this, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. This is Paul speaking. For my power is made perfect in your weakness. You think power is on a throne? You think power is, is strength. Actually, no power right now is not going to be what Lucifer presented to you as power and what you can see. No, actually power is just going to turn into weakness. I'm going to redefine it, give another explanation behind it. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in my weaknesses, not in power, but I actually delight in my weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties, all these things that we don't want as human beings. Paul is saying, I'm going to delight in this, for when I am weak, then I am what? Powerful. And then I am, I am strong. Look at God's wisdom. God's wisdom is changing again everything that Lucifer wanted, making a statement. So we can easily say, well, who is our God? 
Is it power? Or is it, well, I need to lay my life down for Christ. Because that's where it's at. And in my weakness, I can still rejoice. Number eight, Jesus redefined position. I will sit on the most assembly, uh, sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. This is my position. Positions was a topic within the disciples. They made the statement, who's going to be the greatest among us in heaven, God? I mean, we all want position because it is inside our system to have position. And, and all of a sudden they get these words, the greatest among you will be the one that serves. <laughs> Whoa, Lucifer didn't want that. No, no. The greatest among you will be the one who serves. For whoever exalts himself, as if Satan exalted himself, but if you exalt yourself, you be make a statement who God, your God is. If you exalt yourself, I will humble you because he's nothing. I will humble you. And whoever humbles himself all of a sudden will do what? All of a sudden be exalted. Money is something that carries uh, a power to get us into um, a position. And it is something that's inside our nature because it's not that we want money. It's, it's that we do, we do like the process of position. But when we even look at um, um, these items that will give us position in the world, um, they're even cursed um, in a sense. Um, money is, uh, carries a, a curse that God says, you know, money will get you position. Well, hold on a second. If you love money, you don't love me. All of a sudden, this mo- these words money even have an aggression that is um, there. And why does money have such an aggression? Because money is, is a master. It's not the master, but it is a master um, of position. Um, a bed does, um, money is a master of position, so we think that is the only way that we'll get position. But God made a statement that's like, no, 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 no. Money is not going to get you anywhere. In fact, money is going to take you even away from um, the position that we are longing for. So these little items that Satan even uses to give us somewhere, those things are cursed as well. Ecclesiastes 5.10 says this, Whoever loves money never has enough money. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with income. This too is meaningless. A good As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are those of the ownership except the feast of the eyes on them? Sleep of labor is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but an abundance of a rich man permits him no sleep. I will see, I have seen grievous evil under the sun. Wealth hoarded to harm of its owners, or wealth lost through the misfortune, some misfortune, so that when he has a son, therefore there is nothing left for him. Naked a man comes from his womb, and as he comes, so he despairs, he departs. He takes nothing from his labor that he can carry in his hand. This, too, is a grievous evil. So there's tools. Money is not, nothing wrong with money, but yet it's a tool to get position. And in that process of a tool to get position, we have to look and say, well, is this money um, being used for this God, or is this money being used for this God? Because God, in his great wisdom, made a very distinction on how it can take place. And Paul mentions it. He says, this is what I think of money. Money made me absolutely mad. Why? Because he had all the money in the world. But it mentions that through this passage that he couldn't keep it, so it just made him extremely mad. He couldn't protect it and made him mad. And he couldn't enjoy it. He couldn't fill it up. It just, it just, it just made him mad. It was, it was cursed. He had all of it. All of it in the world. But it was nothing more than a curse. They even say that the poorest man in this world is the man who has, every, has all the money in the world and nothing else. 
no relationship because money doesn't do anything unless you even have relationship. But these are the tools that Satan is using us for the purpose of giving us this position. God redefines it. He says, if you have money, give. Those who are giving are the ones that will be blessed. Again, redefines it. Not where we're getting position, but where we are getting blessing instead. Number nine, God redefined beauty. Satan says, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be beautiful. I will be gorgeous. Well, the Bible has some comments about beauty as well. Proverbs 31, it's redefined. Charm is deceitful. In other words, charm can lie. It's not honest. Beauty is fleeting. Beauty is vain. But then it says, but the woman who fears the Lord shall be praised. It's not all in beauty. Yeah, Satan was beautiful. He was absolutely gorgeous. And he wanted something as a result because he was beautiful. But God changed it all. He said, beauty's not going to give you anything. In fact, watch out. Because if beauty is your obsession and beauty is your focus, you're just going to bury yourself right into a hole. Proverbs eleven twenty two says, like a gold ring and a pig's snout is a beautiful woman. Who shows no discretion. Now you look at that and you say, well, what does that verse mean? Well, I have some cows, so I, I know what that verse means. Um, a, a, a ring and a snout is when you put a ring and a snout and then you put a chain to it, you can absolutely control a, a cow. And uh, so you can have a big, huge bull and you put a ring right inside the nose and then you can control them. And, and I know this because um, I don't, you haven't used a ring, but I had one cow in particular that had a, that had a, um, What's the word? A snot problem. In other words, he was sick. And there's snot just blowing out of this cow's nose. And then the vet came out and says, well, what we need to do is we need to give it a shot. And, and so he said, well, Mike, what I want you to do is if you put your hands in there instead of a ring, I want you just to lift the head up and he'll go docile because his eyes will go into the back of his head. And then when you do that, then I'll stick him in the, the rump with a shot. And so sure enough, I, I did that. And I picked him up and I and picked his head up and then he gave him a shot. And, he said, you need to give him a shot for the next couple of days. And I said, okay, that sounds good. But the vet was no longer there. So I asked my wife if she would come help me. And I said, well, <laughs> you probably don't want to take your hand. And you probably don't want to stick it into that nose. Because I will tell you that snot literally rolls right over the top of it when you do that. And when you grab it, you need to pull it up. You need to hang on to it. So since you don't want to do that, honey, why don't you just give him the shot? And then I will do the sick, disgusting part. So I did. I put him in there. And stuck the head up, and the head the cow was docile. And my wife went back there with the needle and says, it's not going in. It's not going in. <laughs> and rolling it back and forth. I don't know. I don't break the needle. She says, it's not going in. I said, change positions. I will do the shot. You grab the nose. And she went with those little cute hands, and she stuffed her hands into that pile of snot. And she lifted up. I said, higher and higher. And she's short. So she goes like this, and it just starts to run down her whole body, and I'm like, I'm hurrying, and I give them the shot, and, and she's just completely covered with this snot. Absolutely disgusting. Gross. Sorry, honey. Thank you for still being married to me. Let's look at the verse. Like a gold ring in a pig's snout. Let's talk about the gold ring that is there connected. And what we do is, let's just say as men, according to this passage, we look at women and say, oh, she's beautiful. He's great. Yeah, and, and we evaluate completely entirely by, her, say, her looks or her body and all these things, and that is what is driving us. But like a gold ring and a pig's snout that you take and then you pull towards you, better look out because when she comes close, all of a sudden you're going to get a pile of snot. 
<laughs> Meaning that beauty is not all. Beauty is not the piece that should even be looked at and even observed in the process of finding a relationship in those pieces of it. There's nothing wrong with being beautiful. But if it is our obsession, what we do is we catch the fish of the bait that we use. And the obsession of, oh, I'll go after beauty, I'll go after beauty, I'll go after beauty, got to say, I redefine beauty. <laughs> I redefine beauty. The woman who fears the Lord shall be praised. It's been completely and entirely redefined. Isaiah 53, 2 says this, He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire. When Jesus came, this is Jesus, this is speaking of Jesus, there, the only thing we know about his appearance is there was nothing inside of him that was beautiful. Nothing that we go, oh my goodness, I want to go and I want to be connected with that person because he has position, he has power, he has prestige. Nothing was beautiful in him. And guess what? He was God. Why was nothing beautiful in him? I'm redefining it. Everything that Satan wanted, everything that glory Jesus is going to come. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, the God is going to come and not be to throw back into his face. Isaiah 23, 9, The Lord of hosts has planned it to defile the pride of all beauty, to despise all the honored on earth. It's in us to have beauty. It's in us to have position. It's in us to have fame. It's in us to have glory. But where is it at? Let's worry where your God is at. Because there is a God over here that has all of it. And there's a God over here that has the opposite of it, which would be Jesus Christ. Be a servant. Be humble. Fear the Lord for that. Those are the women. Those are the people that will be praised. Number 10, God redefines status, what status looks like. And Satan's pretty aggressive. I will make myself like the most high God. I mean, that's a pretty, that's a pretty big statement. Well, all the way through Scripture, we see um, status, and we see positions. And one of the status and one of the positions is um, the 12 apostles. It's like, you know, those guys, they carry status. You know, they carry position. I mean, they're the ones that Jesus taught. They're the ones that Jesus walked with. They are the ones that will change the world through the message that was given to them because of Jesus at the cross. They're going to send it. They're going to plant the church. These guys are the top guys that carry the most position in the world. Who are they? Dirty old fisherman, <laughs> tax collector. There was nothing fascinating about these guys. Absolutely nothing fascinating. In fact, Mark, um, 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 I forgot his name. John MacArthur makes a statement. The only thing fascinating about those 12 disciples is that they were picked in the first place. <laughs> That's the only thing that was fascinating about them. And that God picked them. But yet, what happened? That position, what changed the world? They completely changed the dynamic of the world. The 12 positions of the 12 disciples changed the world. Well, why did they change the world? How did they change the world? And what did they do to change the world? Here's a passage in Acts 4. This is how they changed the world. When they looked at the disciples, when they saw that Peter and John, they realized that they were nobodies. That's what the passage says. They realized that they were unschooled. They realized that they were ordinary men. They realized that they were dirty old fishermen. They realized that they were losers. But they're changing the world. How are they doing it? They were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. That's why they're changing the world. 
an absolute nobody, who Paul even says, I am the least, an absolute nobody, so they can absolutely see a somebody. And when you're the nobody, the somebody, which is Jesus Christ, then changes the world. What happens is that Lucifer, Satan, wanted people to see him. In our lives, with God, we're supposed to do what? Decrease, like John the Baptist. So he what? Increases, because our name's not worth a hill of beans, and his name does what? It saves. His name changes the world. You see, there's two gods out there. And God's wisdom says, I want to make a very clear distinction between the two gods that are out there. There's a God that is driving for this, which would I just use the word Satan, driving for all this. And then there's a King of kings and Lord of lords, which is Jesus Christ, driving for this. Find out which one we're following. 1 Corinthians 5, 15.9 says, For I am the least of the apostles. I do, not even cons- I do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Who is that? That's the greatest apostle in the world. That's Paul that says that. But he says, I'm the least of the apostles. I don't even deserve to be even called apostles. And yet all my little letters that I'm trying to do to send out to help the church grow is now in the canon of Scripture that everybody's reading. What happens is that when Paul was least, Jesus was the greatest. He's exalting something else besides everything Lucifer wanted. Number 11, God's thoughts are not our thoughts and God's ways are not our ways. It's in us, in our nature, and that's that sinful nature. And Satan just pushes that sinful nature. But God's thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. He carries wisdom. It's found in Isaiah 55, 8. My thoughts are not my thoughts, are not, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor your ways, my ways, declares the Lord. And in this passage of 1 Corinthians 1, 17 through 31, we can just see exactly what he is doing, and I just want to read it. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is a scholar? Where is a philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world, through its wisdom, did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believed. He's pleased with it. He loved it. He was attracted to it. This is what I'm going to do. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were noble by birth. But God has done what? Chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God has chose the weak things of this world to shame the strong. He has chose the lonely things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before God. That is God's wisdom coming from God's mind. And remember who he is. 
He carries all the power in the world. He carries all the sovereignty. He carries all the glory. He carries all the beauty. But what he says, I'm going to make a distinction between God and you guys understand what it is. You have one here that says, this is what I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. And you have me here and say, this is what you to do. And then pulls it down. So again, you'll be um, exalted. Extreme amount of wisdom, but wisdom. But what we do is we all know that we struggle with the, the same thing that got Satan put into our system. Power, position, glory, strength, beauty. We are, it's, it's in our system. But that is a spiritual battle we're talking about. And what we're supposed to do is choose God and as a result to overcome those, those things that are inside of us. So we're going to open up for questions. Sorry, I just kind of went for it just to get that, that major statement down. Um, but uh, open up for questions, and, and you guys can ask questions in regards to this or, or also across the spectrum. So, James, we've got a microphone that Rich is um, bringing now. Right here. I'm sorry, Rich. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, I, I just going to stay out of it. <laughs> you guys just run it. Okay, so the question that I have is, you know, we're, we're kind of reflecting on uh, you know, how Satan was, you know, exalting himself and, and then kind of being a pain and it's just exhausting. You know, this whole process of, of what we're doing and our purpose and to give back to God. And my question is a little uh, complicated in the sense of uh, thinking like a higher mindset to say eternity is a long time. I mean, forever. Did you know of like a reference point or a place in scripture where God says, this will never happen again? Because if you don't have that grounding, it's like, what's to say this doesn't repeat? Mm-hmm. That's a really good question. And I would say the one spot of where it will never happen again and maybe you can, you can, you know, challenge this to say, well, maybe he wants to do it again, is that when Jesus, who is deity, when we talk about, when we talk about um, uh, the Trinity, he is deity, meaning he is God. He's God in human form. And as a result of being God in human form, what happened to him? He died. And in the process of him dying, we can ask the question, how many times is God going to die, you know, to make a statement? Well, that statement is a loaded statement. I mean, that statement gives us an explanation that it's probably not going to happen again. It's not going to happen again. That would be one statement. But it also gives another statement of, of what's going on um, in eternity. And, and that is um, people saw God differently before the cross than after the cross. When they saw God before the cross, what did they see? They saw his being. They saw the Lopez beauty, the diamond, the emerald, they, they saw his being and he was absolutely beauty. Because if you are God, I mean, let's be honest with you, you don't need much character. It's just, you just don't need much character. And as a result of being God, if he had character, we would have never seen his character. Because he's, he's God. He does exactly what he wants. Now, if we don't see his character, you can't fall in love with him. You can't be connected with him. You can't, you're, you're nothing but a low piece of garbage that is way, way down as he's way, 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 way up. And so the, the cross makes this huge statement that when I came, I 
emptied myself completely as I am of God, and I came as a man, and then I was tempted in every way. All of a sudden, what do you see now? You don't see his being anymore. You actually see his heart. You see his character. You see what he's doing. You see love, which First John says, you don't even know what love is until this took place. And in the Old Testament, you say, yeah, God loves you, God loves you, God loves you. Well, what does that mean? You know, what, what, what does that mean? We didn't know in the Old Testament what it meant. All of a sudden, the cross took place. It's like, oh, wow. I completely know what that means. And as a result of the cross, everything has changed. Everything is, is changed. Because the angels are living completely shocked. I mean, think about from an angel's perspective. You know, they just seen the being of God, and all of a sudden, God does what? He leaves heaven, he comes to earth, and the angels, according to Ephesians 5, look down and go, what in the world is our God doing? <laughs> this is absolutely crazy. He's becoming a, a man. Those guys sinned. And he's, he's homeless. They're not even treating him good down there. I mean, these angels have got to be just losing it up there. And all, they just, what? They're going to crucify him? They're waiting for God to send fire and just annihilate the world. But yet he doesn't. He keeps on going through this process. And as a process, God's character, which he wants us to recognize, is being completely entirely displayed. So when it comes to heaven, there's going to be a, a different um, um, perspective for eternity of what we're going to have with God because of what? Because of what he did. So this means that we'll read the Bible forever. <laughs> we're going to read the Bible forever. Why are we going to read the Bible forever? Because it gives us an explanation of the character of God. And then you can't go into all the dynamics of the relationship between us and God. Um, in fact, if you look at the Bible, and you talk about heaven, you talk about eternity, there's little or no passage that says, let me talk to you about what's going on in eternity. If you look at Revelation, what do they talk about? They talk about the millennium. They talk about the new Jerusalem. They talk about the rain on this earth. I mean, that's there's a thousand-year period that we're talking about here. We're not talking about eternity. Now, we know we're going to be eternal because the Bible is very clear we're going to be eternal. But this is what's going to happen in this step. And you know what? There's going to be another step. And there's going to be another step. And there's going to be another step. And it's going to get glorious, more glorious, more glorious, more glorious, more glorious. But we'll never let go of the, symbol, the, the statement of the cross. That's why I believe it will, never, it will never happen again. It's what I believe. And, and also, the other thing it does is that you have all these living beings that are out there. You have Satan and his angels, and you have God and his angels, and then you have human beings. The cross does what? It puts everybody in their spot. It puts Satan and his angels in his spot. And uh, it puts the angels are still in their spot. And then it puts us in our spot for eternity, this way or this way. So everybody all of a sudden goes in our spot. Well, what happens is eternity goes on. Oh, great, something else happened. Well, wait a second. You already put everybody in their spot. So I don't think there's anything that's going to take place afterwards. That's a good question. I appreciate that. And I think, and I, as I'm hearing what you're saying, is that representation of what happened, what, what you know, Christ did to come to the cross, is that reflection, if we're reading that and, and kind of reminiscing the Bible you know, for eternity, it's like that's what that love was. Love goes and did. And, you know, that's what love did. Yeah, and absolutely. so it's like, you know, oh, I've got this time gap. It's like, no, we're going to keep remembering that. Mm -hmm. and, and so um, that's what I was thinking of as far as that. It's like it's, it's been proven, you know, and it's been done. And so it's just like let's, we, won't, we won't forget because yeah. it's going to be constantly, you know, 
in our minds. So yeah. I appreciate that. Constantly everything in my mind. And the other thing is that, you know, when it talks about heaven, there's three different heavens. You know, there's an atmospherical heaven and there's a, a universal heaven in the universe because those are the heavens, you know, the birds in the heaven. That's not talking about, you know, heaven. And then, in, and then the third heaven is mentioned in Second Corinthians. Paul went to the third heaven. That means there's three heavens and those are the, the three heavens. Well, when you look at the universe, it's going to take us an eternity to figure that one out. I mean, if you, I mean, if you think about it, we haven't even got to heaven yet. I mean, so I think we're going to have a lot to do. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. It, it's beyond our mind. But, um, but we're going to rejoice in the relationship with God for eternity. And see, that's one thing that when we start talking about heaven, um, our mind instantly goes to mansions, goes to wealth, goes to everything that, you know, Satan is like, oh, it's going to be streets of gold. There's going to be this, there's going to be this, there's going to be this. But yet when we're on earth, um, it's about those things, but it's not the driving force. you know what the driving force is? Relationships. Husbands and, and wives and, and being in love. And, and if you have wealth and money and don't have relationship, you have nothing. We know that as human beings. But heaven's the same thing. It's about relationship. But it's not about relationship only with us. It's about relationship with God. And so that relationship is actually, that's going to be so much better than mansions and streets of gold and New Jerusalem, all those things, we're going to have actually a relationship with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And that cross is what given us that, has given us that relationship. So, thanks, James. Don't mean to keep on, keep on talking. So, Rich, you can go wherever you want. We get hands back in the front, <laughs> in the front, and on the top. Did you see a hand up here too, Rich, just to let you know. So, you know, I guess maybe you can do that one and then head back. <laughs> we do have 10 minutes, so we should be all right on questions. I just wanted to add what you said is that we will see him as he is, yeah. his crucified state yeah. in glory. So that's the remembrance in heaven that we will always have. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And um, and what does he have? The scars. Are we going to have our scars? I think so. <laughs> I mean, I think we'll I think we'll have some some scars. Why? Because I think we'll reflect. God, remember we were back on earth. Remember I lost my child. Remember when this took place? Remember that took place? And then all of a sudden our eyes will be open. But God, you're always with me. You always walk with me. And I see everything that even took place in this, this plan that I never understood until I saw you face to face. And um, we will be in body form and we will have scars. Jesus has scars. I can't say we'll have scars because I not say we have scars. But Jesus had his scars. Thomas, put your hand inside of me. You know, feel my hands. So absolutely, this this world is really rich. I mean, it's it's really rich. It's something you don't want to waste. It's something you don't want to go. Oh yeah, I, you know, live in this world. Oh yeah, I need to buy this, buy that, and buy that, and be consumed by other things. It's too rich to let it pass up because it's going to be talked about, you know, for forever, a long time, a long time, meaning eternity. Um, I didn't even know if I wanted to ask this question, but it's been bothering me for a long time. Mm -hmm. I'm glad you're asking it. I love it. (laughs) Um, The enormity of God, it kind of puts me off a little bit as far as a relationship with him. I can relate to Christ because of his body here on earth. But when I think of the enormity of God, and he made the universe, and the universe is beyond our belief as far as how many light years it is. Um, I know God doesn't, there's no sense of time. In other words, eternity, I mean, a thousand years is but a day. 
but I, I just, <laughs> I wonder, I, okay, we're going to be like Christ when we're our new bodies. Mm-hmm. How are we going to relate to God mm-hmm. except through Christ? I mean, he's sitting at the right hand of God now. I don't know. I'm just a little bit confused. Yeah. Well, that's a phenomenal question, phenomenal statement um, as well, because the enormity of God is absolutely extreme, absolutely big, absolutely huge. You look at the universe, it's like, it's just, it's just beyond. And, um, and, you know, when it comes to mystery, I don't have the direct answer for that. But I would separate the enormity of God from... Um, um, the character of God. So in other words, we can see the normity of God, and through that enormity, you can see the glimpses of, of character. Um, you can see the glimpses of character through creation. God is an artist. God carries beauty. God carries the, all these things. But you don't see the, and you, and you see the, the normity, and you can see character through a little bit, but you don't see the, the magnificence of the character until you, until you get to Jesus. Now you see the magnificence of the character in regards to the creation, in regards to we have air. Why? You know, we get to sleep and have rest. Why? It's because, you know, God has given us grace and then you see us. We're sinners. Why should we have that? You know, so you see grace and you see love and you see the stories that are going through the Old Testament of the patience of God and the goodness of God and the grace of God and the mercy of God all the way even through the Old Testament, but all of a sudden there's this revelation of, of character that takes place even beyond all that. This gives a, a firm description, and that would be, um, now we understand what love is. Now we understand what relationship is with God. You know, enormity, but now we understand a relationship um, with God, which is, you know, I still can't believe we can have one. We shouldn't have one. Why would we have one? And then, but the Bible's radical and crazy, and um, and I mean, one of the radical, crazy pieces of it is that you are heirs of God, and you're co-heirs of Jesus. Like what? I, I don't understand. I don't understand the I, why. Um, the only thing, and I think the dynamics of it is that Jesus is going to be given a gift for what he did. And this is going to sound like a really rotten gift. It is a really rotten gift, but it's going to be good, so it's good. What's the gift? It's going to be us. I mean, and you can look at it and say, why? I don't understand that. Why? I don't, what's the, what's the, I would say it's not even the desire or the attraction about us, because I don't think there's a desire and attraction about us. It's a desire and attraction about what he did. What he did makes us something. And um, and it's it's hard to understand, but just in a sense, I mean, I you know, I'm just talking to you. I don't understand it because it's, it's it's too tough. But what he did makes us what we are, so we don't get any credit for it. So we can't say I'm a beautiful gift to God, but yet I am a beautiful gift to God because of what he did, not what I did. So therefore, God looks at me different because of what he did. And if he didn't do anything, then I'm, I'll never be anything. But that, I think those are the pieces of it that, yes, we don't understand the whole dynamics of it. We don't understand the, the nuances of it, the, the extreme of it. Because when you start talking about the enormity of God, it's like, how is this going to work? The answer is, I don't know. And the answer is, it's not described in the Bible. That's why he describes the millennium. 
and says, thousand years on earth, you guys are too simple, you guys are too dumb, I can't go beyond this, you know, I'll put a timetable on it, you got 1,000 years, you know, Jesus will be a king, you know, it's, I mean, it's, it's given in the simplicity of that, but that's not the end. There's still another, <laughs> it's still going to go somewhere else. I, it doesn't describe that somewhere else because it's too, it's too big. So that would just be my guess, I don't know. But um, yeah, it's it, it's hard. I mean, I'll tell you, it's hard as a preacher to even say you can have a relationship with God. I mean, why? Uh, it's always well, it's because of, it's because of Him. It's because of Him. It's because of Him. It's because of Him. It can't be because of it can't be because of this. Good question. Thanks for bringing it up. I, that's the best I can do with the answer because I don't know. I don't know. I don't know it. But I have to hang on to Scripture and consistently give out. You can have a relationship in the normative. Well, what does that relationship look like? Oh, it's big. Yeah, right. I think a lot of people forget about the Holy Spirit because we're going to have a more understanding because of the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. So, for example, I will always think of myself as the biggest sinner I know because as further in my salvation, I start to understand and become more sensitive to these things. Mm-hmm. But when we go to heaven, we're going to have a full understanding because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which allows us to understand these other things. So when he says sin's going to be gone, it's going to be because we have a complete understanding of what and how worthless we were and what he has done through the Holy Spirit. But my question is, actually, it's about three days. So Lazarus was dead for three days. Jesus was dead for three days. Is there any reason why the three days is important? So I think Lazarus was dead for four, wasn't he? Dead for four? Maybe I'm wrong. I think he was... Um, I think he was dead for four, but um, it, the three days of Jesus is the three days um, is the three days um, important. In other words, is there a systematic thing that's going on that's going on with three days? And um, and there is a systematic number that is out there, you know, forty years. You know, that's a, a systematic number that goes all the way um, through the um, through the scripture. You know, of the the 40 years, and, you know, yeah, 400 years that they were in slavery, and, and uh, you have 40 years Jesus um, was fasting. I mean, the 40 comes is pretty specific. So is there something specific about the three days? Um, I would say I don't know because I haven't tracked it. So my guess is that um, there wasn't something specific about it. That would be my guess. Um, one thing about the three days that um, is there is that it does um, um, make a statement that Jesus was in a grave and Jesus was dead. But we look at that statement to say he was easy to resurrect. Um, but during that resurrection, you know, I don't know who it was, but some other people were resurrected too. You know, during during the or no, that was during the that was during the crucifixion. Other people were resurrected, but those have been dead for years. So. I don't know what the three days have significance, but it is interesting that we take the three days and we say Jesus is easy to resurrect. But when he resurrects everybody, we're going to be pretty ugly after 40 years, 100 years, 1,000 years, 2,000 years. There's going to be nothing left to us. But yet in the process, and we'll talk about this as a resurrection, we will be put together. We're not going to be reincarnated. We're actually going to be put back together. And that's fascinating in a sense of, if you think about it, been dead for that long. Jesus was dead put back together and rose again. So I don't know if, um, I don't know anything, I don't know the topic of three days. So I can look it up and possibly even see if there is a 
I can't think of one. But three days should have been more or less. All right, one more question. We'll do Charlene. This goes back to the gentleman that um, shared uh, what will it be like with God's enormity to have a relationship with God. And what comes to mind is that uh, the picture of the Garden of Eden, God in all of his enormity and eternity came down and was with Adam and Eve and walked with them. And then I think of Moses called the friend of God. Abraham is called the friend of God. And that's before Jesus. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, I don't know, that just came to mind when you shared that. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. It's a very, very good point. Thanks for bringing that up. In fact, I want to say thank you for all those people brought, you know, even things up. Appreciate the questions and also bringing them, bringing them up because um, um, absolutely. 